that across all of our work, we see that we see that curiosity comes as an outcome of when people formulate their own questions. I think people assume that you must be curious in order to ask questions. We actually see that it's the reverse, that when people come up with their own questions, they become curious. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad you're here. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Wharton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I recently taught a short course on curiosity for a lifelong learning program. My final class centered on curiosity and leadership and social justice. Really, it was about putting curiosity to work in meaningful ways in our community. I had a slew of what I call curiosity practices to offer skills, habits, little routines that we can use to strengthen our curiosity muscle day to day, moment to moment. But none felt more potent that day than one from the Right Question Institute, RQI, a nonprofit organization in Massachusetts that works to build a more just and equitable democracy by strengthening people's ability to ask questions and to participate in decisions that affect them. As RQI puts it, when people of all ages learn to ask the right questions, it leads to feeling a new sense of agency, confidence, and power. And that's not just feel-good vision statement stuff. There's research to back them up. According to Jamie Giroux, a professor and researcher at the University of Virginia, children who generated more questions for problem solving were better at recognizing effective questions generally. She also found that generating questions for learning is related to generating problem solving questions. So practicing our question formulation, whether to learn or problem solve, helps us practice problem solving more broadly. At the same time, there's also research that trauma, fear, and anxiety can really blunt curiosity. So we're often having to work against pressures we likely can't control. In addition, Harvard economist Sentil Muleyanthan and the Princeton psychologist Elder Shafir have done terrific work on scarcity and what that does to our thought processes. As they put it, scarcity captures the mind. So if you're experiencing scarcity, as in poverty, food insecurity, housing insecurity, not feeling physically or emotionally safe, or simply not having enough hours in the day to do all that life demands of you, how can you have bandwidth for curiosity? Fortunately, research tells us that if you can turn up the curiosity dial even just a little, that helps dial back anxiety and fear. So for people who are facing scarcity or any number of other barriers to their well-being and their own self of agency, having some tools to work with, having some curiosity practices is really helpful. And that's where RQI comes in. Naomi Campbell is director of the Right Question Institute's Legal Empowerment Program. She's leading RQI's effort to promote the adoption of what they call the right question strategy in legal practice settings serving low-income communities. Naomi is also a member of RQI's micro-democracy team, 
collaborating on their voter engagement, school family partnerships, healthcare, and social service programs. Links to all of which are on my website. There are many things I have come to admire about RQI and the Legal Empowerment Program, but perhaps most is this. They offer a simple way to integrate capacity building into practice at the micro level as part of a systemic change strategy at the macro level. Turns out, teaching people to ask their own right questions is a pretty terrific way to do right more generally. Naomi Campbell, I am delighted to have you here with me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I'm very excited about this. And I, you know, I want to ask, I know RQI began originally as a dropout prevention program. And your founders almost immediately heard from parents that they weren't participating in their kids' education because they didn't even know what questions to ask. Tell me more about what an obstacle not even knowing what questions to ask really is. Well, it's interesting you mentioned this story because actually the the founders of RQI, when they first heard that, didn't recognize how big of an obstacle that really was. And what they tried at first, this was a dropout prevention program in a community, primarily immigrant community north of Boston. And what they said was, okay, great. You don't know what questions to ask. I'm going to give you a list of questions. You're going to be able to go into the school and advocate for your children using these 10 questions, using these five questions. And what the parents would do, would take, they would take the questions, go to the schools. Like and a then checklist. Come, yeah, like a checklist. And they would come <laughs> straight back to the dropout prevention program and say, that worked great. Can we have more questions, please? Mm-hmm. And so the RQI co-founders started to see that this was a bigger obstacle than they had realized. This was an obstacle that may apply in people's interactions, not only with the schools, but also in other public institutions and agencies where decisions were being made that affected them. So they realized that it was about teaching people to ask their own questions. And I think that's, that's something that we really emphasize. It's not only about asking the right questions, but it's building the skill of question formulation that can be used no matter the setting. And the parents also showed that these skills were applicable across these different areas. So they would come and they would say, I didn't use this at the school, but I used it in the housing authority, or Uh, I used it in the community health center. And so that was the genesis of RQI. Very cool. So for those who haven't been immersed in your work as I have been in recent days or over the years, tell us more about RQI. Yeah, yeah. I think you you summed it up in such a nice way at the beginning. But at the Right Question Institute, we develop very simple tools and processes that help people engage, that help people advocate for themselves and help people participate in decision making particularly focused on people who often don't feel like they have a voice in decisions that affect them. And all of these tools are based around having people formulate their own questions. And what we see is that people, that this this skill is a transformative skill. So when people build this skill, there are cognitive, affective, and behavioral changes that happen. So cognitive in the sense that People know how to formulate their own questions. They know the difference between an open and closed-ended question. They know a process to prioritize. Affective in the sense that people say, you know, I'm not intimidated anymore. I feel like I have some kind of control. I feel like I have a voice. 
And then behavioral changes, people are able to take action on their own behalf. And so we see these changes across many different fields in which we work. And as, as you said, and I'm the director of the Legal Empowerment Program, but we partner with legal professionals and others. So that includes social service providers, outreach workers, adult educators, who all are working with clients who are dealing with decisions that affect them on a daily basis right. across many different systems. So what's the right question strategy? I mean, what, what is it really? What fits into that bucket? Yeah, so the, the right question strategy, it, builds, it really builds two skills. It builds people's ability to ask their own questions and then focus effectively on decisions. And so the first piece, there's a, there's a very simple process that people go through where they have a focus for their questions. So that's either a scenario or a sentence or a concept, uh, something that they're experiencing. Often there's, it includes a decision. And people go through a process of producing questions using a set of rules uh, about that scenario, about that focus. And then they go through a process of improving their questions, looking at the difference between open and closed-ended questions, the advantages and disadvantages of both. They practice changing questions. They prioritize the questions that they've come up with. And there's a reflection step as well. What did they learn? How can they use what they learned? The second piece, which is a focus on decisions, has people look at key elements of decision-making. So that's, we break it down into reasons, process, and role. So mm -hmm. reasons, what are the reasons for the decision? What was the process for making the decision? And what role do the people affected by this, the decision or what role do you have in the decision-making process? And so we ask people to identify questions related to reason, questions related to process, and questions related to role. What we also do is we, we give people a very simple definition of decisions. And what we've heard in some of our work is, I don't know what a decision is, or I didn't know decisions were made here, talking about a doctor's office or talking about the welfare office. Having the vocabulary for this stuff is important, isn't it? It's important, yeah. And it's, it's also, it's more complex than I think people realize <laughs> sometimes. Right. Um, there, well, we have two reactions, actually. Sometimes people say, you know, these are extremely sophisticated thinking skills that are fundamental. How could you possibly teach this in a simple process? And then other people say, you know, questions, what's the big deal? Everybody can ask questions <laughs> and think about decisions. And so there's this the kind of range of reaction to this. And yeah, our, our job is to, to simplify and democratize teaching very fundamental critical thinking skills. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and today I'm joined by Naomi Campbell, director of the Right Question Institute's Legal Empowerment Program. She's leading RQI's efforts to promote the adoption of what they call the right question strategy in legal practice settings serving low-income communities. So give me, a, give me an anecdote. I mean, tell me a story of where you've seen this at work. You know, to that question of, is this complicated or not? It, looks, it sounds easy. It sounds almost too easy, and yet it's not. So, yeah. <laughs> so tell me a story that helps explain that. 
Yeah, one story that I love because I think it's, it's, yeah, it makes it concrete for people. It's about a social worker who works in a rural state and she works with youth who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness. And she works in conjunction with a legal services program. So what she does, she, she has youth referred to her. She works with them, prepares them for meetings with attorneys. She prepares them maybe to advocate pro se on their own in the legal system. And one, one story is about her working with a young woman who was living in a homeless shelter who was facing a, a custody battle for her baby and preparing to meet with an attorney. Mm. And so she was referred, this, this young mother, this teenage mother was referred because she needed a parenting plan, which is a document describing how she planned to parent her baby after separating from the baby's father. The father of the baby was living with his parents and his parents were filing this custody case. Uh, so they were they they had hired a, an attorney to sue this young woman for custody, and when she came to meet with the social worker, she was completely frozen, completely overwhelmed, completely intimidated, terrified of losing her child, and the social worker started trying to get to the core of the problem, identifying goals, uh, make an action plan, make a parenting plan, and. Basically, the, the young woman in front of her could barely respond and questions were just over, more overwhelming. I was a 30-year-old with a young child. I'm not sure I could have produced a parenting plan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the social worker decided to take a different tact and use a very simple process for this young woman to come up with questions about mm-hmm. the parenting plan. And so after, after a few minutes, the, the young woman had identified a list of 28 questions where before walking into the meeting with the social worker, she had had none. And coming up with those questions allowed her to identify what she needed to know and do, and also what was most important to her. And so they went through the step-by-step process of improving and prioritizing questions And then she was able to walk into a meeting with an attorney, which is an even more intimidating experience. You're sitting across the desk from this professional who who is an expert, who is asking you questions. And she walked into that appointment with eight prioritized questions with the attorney. And it, it it seems very simple, but it's this new form. We see it as a new form of agency and strategic thinking and also showed the attorney that she was ready to fight this battle, and the attorney agreed to represent her in the custody case. It's a wonderful story of a, a one young mother's kind of finding her voice, almost literally, it sounds like. If you are doing that at scale, that's not just transformative of an individual, but that's transformative in a community and of systems. So speak to that if you would, because that feels huge. Yeah, that's our our big plan, the big vision behind what we do. I mean, other examples of using this is having people ask questions about decisions made in the welfare office or ask questions about decisions made when their child has an IEP, an individualized education program and needs Mm. certain supports in schools. And basically, it's having people uncover decisions that are being made that affect them. And when they're able to exercise those skills, when they're able to ask questions, focus on decisions at that micro level, not only are they building skills that they can use elsewhere, they can use when they're in the voting booth, they can use when they're advocating for their communities at at a higher level, 
They're also uncovering decisions that are made at the micro level that connect to decisions that are made at the macro mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. So if their benefits are being cut at the welfare office, they're asking questions about that. They're holding officials accountable there. And they're also starting to understand that the decisions made there are a result of decisions made elsewhere in our democracy. So my benefits are being cut. Why is that? Where does that go? Who made that decision? And so really, there's really democratic significance to the decisions that are being made in these public institutions. I'm also struck at the place that reflection has. Why is reflection so important in this process? Well, reflection, we, we talk about it as a form of metacognitive thinking. Mm-hmm. So thinking about thinking, <laughs> basically, you're, you're thinking about what you went through and then internalizing it better. And also you're able to then understand what you learned. So you're able to apply it in other situations. So I think that that reflection step is extremely important. I think the, the reason the reason process and role people can think about the process that they went through and why it's important for them to understand about reason, process, and role. Uh, but that's that's the piece where we're giving people information as opposed to having them think about what they learned. It also seems to me, I mean, also in the sort of the cognitive, affective, and behavioral sort of level of all of this, that when we reflect on something, we let it really seep into our bones in a way that makes it more permanent. Because if we don't reflect, stuff isn't quite as sticky, I guess, is the way I think about it. I mean, do you do you see that? Is is my instinct borne out yeah. by what you see? Yeah. I, I think I think that's exactly it. It's it's almost a it's like a sticking process <laughs> at mm-hmm. the end. It's it's helping people understand what they've learned and so it sticks with them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think of this as a curiosity enterprise. Do you think of this as a curiosity enterprise? Yes, I I think I do. So I think we see curiosity in this context. Maybe a definition that we would use of curiosity in this context would be a desire to know about something that you may not have been interested in or even aware of before. And Something interesting is that across all of our work, we see that we see that curiosity comes as an outcome of when people formulate their own questions. I think people assume that you must be curious in order to ask questions. We actually see that it's the reverse, that when people come up with their own questions, they become curious. And then in my work with adults who are navigating these different systems, we talk about how question formulation can create or or foster engagement and motivation and a sense of urgency. Mm. And I see engagement as related to, if not an exact synonym of curiosity. And I think there's something that you mentioned at the beginning that I think, I think is so important to highlight that maybe one difference is the level of emotion that a, a situation provokes. So if you're at risk of being evicted or decisions are being made that affect your benefits, your ability to access food or childcare or decisions that affect your job, there's a level of emotional engagement and people can feel overwhelmed and intimidated. And as you said at the beginning, that's not 
that's not an environment where we think if we don't do our best work. (laughs) So we, we think of people as being engaged, as being motivated to find out answers, as, as feeling the sense of urgency or feeling almost a sense of entitlement, as in you owe me an answer, I'm going to hold you accountable. And these are people who are not necessarily used to feeling a sense of entitlement or, or are used to being shut down and told you can't ask questions or we don't encourage your engagement. I think there's, I think definitely curiosity is at the center of all that we do. And sometimes we talk about it as being engagement or, or motivation as Mm -hmm. related to curiosity. Mm -hmm. So how does an organization an entity come to you and, and, and learn how to impart these skills with whomever it is that they're working? How does that actually work? So we, we work in different ways with people. Some, some people come and they do online sessions with us where they just learn the process and they're able to pick it up very quickly and take it into their work environments the next day and use it. Uh, or they're able to download you know, free resources on our website and can use it immediately. There are other organizations that come to us and say, can we have deeper training? Can you come train this specific group of folks? Can you come train our community health workers? Can you come train our outreach workers? And so we do kind of a deeper training where we talk about facilitation and and facilitation best practices and also adapt our tools or modify them or specialize them to the setting that they're working in. What we often find is that people who are in these different settings, they, they know their communities best. They know the contexts that they're working in best. And so what we do is we offer this simple process that can be adapted. And that's where we've learned the most as we've learned from people who are working on the front lines, whether that's mm-hmm. in adult education and healthcare and legal, uh, that's, that's where we uh, get our insights from. Very cool. So have you adopted any curiosity practices for yourself from your experience at RQI? Yeah, absolutely. I I think our organizational culture obviously is one that encourages curiosity, Uh (laughs) encourages iteration, encourages uh, collaboration. and, And so absolutely. I think the other piece of my background that I think fosters that state or fosters that choice of being curious is that in law school, I did work in negotiation, conflict resolution, and facilitation. And obviously, in that context, it's encouraged as a practice. And Mm -hmm. I think this is, I mean, it's reflected in the title of this show, Choose to be Curious. It's not as if curious is is a character trait that you either have or do not have. It's something that you can practice, it's maybe a philosophy, or you can, you can push yourself to be curious. And so in the context of conflict resolution, people talk a lot about curiosity as, you know, you should push yourself to be curious about somebody else's experience, you can choose to be curious about their motivations, their emotions, which obviously helps manage conflict helps people reach a resolution. And I, I definitely was was in those contexts, learning these skills and saying basically that everybody should have access to this kind of philosophy, this kind of training. And so that definitely has fed into my work at RQI. Mm-hmm. You know, I, kind of going back to, is it hard? Is it is it not so hard? Is this complicated? Is it not complicated? I'm realizing for me, it feels a little like walking that 
if you don't know how to do it, it it's hard and you fall down a lot and it, you know, it takes a lot of practice. But once you know how to do it, you have a power that is pretty profound. So it is both simple once you know how to do it and complicated when you're trying to figure it out. So yeah. I like that. So that's also a great segue to my big jar of wannabe analogies. <laughs> you game for this? Yes, absolutely. So I have I have this literal big jar and there are slips of paper in here. And I'm gonna take out three, one for you one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Mine is fungi um, and yours is piano. So how is curiosity like fungi or piano? Do you want to go first or you want me to go? Uh, why don't you go first? I'll, I'll think a little <laughs> uh, bit about okay. this one. <laughs> <laughs> so how is curiosity like fungi? Okay. Um, uh, so it turns out that fungi, mushrooms, are in fact the biggest plants on the planet. They, they're subterranean and they're, they're connected to just about everything that grows. And, and so I think that's like curiosity in that it's often um, a little underground and yet connected to all sorts of things. And, and there's actually pretty interesting research about fungi as being absolutely essential to the nutrient transfer between different other kinds of species. And I, I think curiosity is a little like that. I think it's a necessary, essential network for the transfer of metaphoric <laughs> essential nutrients. So that's what I'll say Woo! about Good. how curiosity is like fungi. How is curiosity like a piano? Okay, let's see. Um, so I... I sometimes tinker around on a piano. I'm oh, nice. not good. I have people in my family who are professional piano players. And so there can sometimes be a little bit of fear when I approach a piano, obviously, because I'm not at that level. But I love I love just kind of playing around on a piano. And I think it's very satisfying when you're when you're playing around and you find a chord that's beautiful or that you can pick out a tune. And I think Sometimes curiosity is like that. When you're not a, when you're not afraid to play around, you can kind of find something beautiful. Nice. Oh, lovely. I like that. And audience, <laughs> yours is Halloween. How is curiosity like Halloween? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Naomi, thank you so much for this. This has really been delightful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. Find this and all my previous episodes on my website, choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on social media. Don't forget to send us your Halloween analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Naomi Campbell, links to the Right Question Institute on my website, where you'll also find links to that research on kids' questions and problem solving and on scarcity. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Faster, Faster, Brighter by Ray Catcher via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs> <laughs>